And it's now my privilege to share with you the scripture for this morning's message from 1 John 3, 19 to 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has condemned us, or commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good morning. All right, going to be one of those days. All right. It is good to see you all. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so delighted that you are with us today. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. This last week, I listened to an interview with um, a comedian that I particularly like, and, and in the course of the interview, he was particularly asked about his faith. It's an interesting question to come up because this particular individual doesn't claim uh, any sort of faith for himself. He, he claims to be an agnostic, but he began to explain through the course of the interview what his uh, experience was with faith in general and with the church in particular. He began to tell about how he was raised in the church. His father was a deacon in the church. His mother was a secretary uh, of their church, a relatively large church in the South. And he described an experience that is typical for a lot of people that grow up in the church within evangelicalism. He described that he went to church every Sunday morning. They had youth group on Sunday nights. They had a midweek service, and so they were kind of there for all of it. They were heavily involved in everything that was taking place. They were at every single event that occurred. He talked about uh, taking part in in what has essentially been, for the last 50 years or so, the standard church kid experience. But in talking about the unraveling of his faith and ultimately what led him into agnosticism, he made a really interesting statement. He said that in his understanding, or in his experience at least, in his church, there was no room for doubt, no room for questions, no room for wondering. And there was no room for the particular questions that he had about his faith. So when in his life he experienced a very deeply uh, personal tragedy and first started to have questions about his faith and the reality of God and the reality of God's existence and the reality of God's goodness and his, his own relationship with God, the doubts came so fast and hit him so hard that he essentially just walked away and never looked back. And I don't doubt that his description of his interaction within the church and his experience of faith was honest in terms of his own experience, whether or not that was actually a true reflection of his church. But what makes that story especially heartbreaking to me is that the Bible itself is incredibly honest and direct about the wrestle that people are going to experience in their spiritual walk and the spiritual doubts that people feel. The Bible is not scared to address the authentic human experience 
And in fact, it records for us particular moments and circumstances in which people just like us throughout the history of time have had their own wrestles with whether or not God is real, with whether he can be known, with how we can be assured of our relationship with him. So in the Old Testament, as you begin to work your way through, you find Job who loved God and cared about God and had a great relationship with God, but upon experiencing a deeply personal tragedy of his own, actually curses the day he was born. And if you read Job chapter 3, what you find him saying is, I wish I'd never been born at all. Quite literally, I wish I didn't exist so that I didn't have to go through this moment. We find Elijah, the great prophet of God, who after calling down fire from heaven and one of the most amazing miracles that's recorded in Scripture, having this supernatural occurrence of the demonstration of God's power and wonder, wanders off into the wilderness and believes in a moment of, of his own dark, darkness of his heart that he's alone in the world and he wishes for death. He has a suicidal desire in his heart after an amazing demonstration of the power and goodness of God. David, all throughout the Psalms, frequently cries out in despair, questioning the goodness and the very presence of God. And the church in Asia Minor, to whom John is writing in this text, is so terrified in a moment of crisis about their own faith that they assume that their own right standing of God may not actually be true of them. And what's so incredible about the Bible's honesty in assessing the human experience is that it always has an answer. And the gospel never responds to doubts that we have with empty platitudes or tedious instructions to simply buck up. No, the gospel always responds with compassion and grace to the human experience. One theologian, a man named Paul Tripp, said it this way. He said, this is what grace does. It rescues us from spiritual blindness. It releases us from our bondage to our rationalism and our materialism. Grace gives us the faith to be utterly assured of what we cannot see. It frees us from refusing to believe in anything we cannot experience with our physical, with our physical senses. But grace does more. It connects us to the invisible one in an eternal love relationship that fills us with joy we have never known before and gives us rest of heart that we would have never thought impossible. And that grace, says Tripp, is still rescuing us because we still tend to forget what is important, real, and true. We still tend to look to the physical world for our comfort. We still fail to remember in given moments that we really do have a heavenly Father. Grace has done a wonderful thing for us and continues to do more and more. And in the text we're looking at this morning, John is continuing in his quest to provide assurance for those who are wrestling with their salvation, with their identity in Jesus Christ. Their confidence had been undermined by the claims of these Gnostics, these false Christians who claimed that you needed something beyond, beyond a relationship with God and something beyond the understanding of Scripture to actually know that you know Him. He, they, they claimed that you needed an extra experience, additional insight, special gifts in order to be sure that you know the one and true living God. 
And John is working to teach this church, and by extension, people like you and me with our own doubts and our own fears and our own questions and our own worries, he's trying to teach us that there is nothing outside of depending solely on the finished work of Jesus that can guarantee your security in him. He is absolutely obsessed with communicating that your eternal security is anchored in the love of God himself as revealed in his promises, demonstrated through his son Jesus, and sealed by the Holy Spirit's indwelling in your life. And so last week we learned that it's in and through recognizing that love of God toward us that we are then enabled and empowered to extend that love to others, even when it doesn't benefit us. That we've been commissioned to unconditionally love brothers and sisters in Christ and by doing so to bring worship and glory to the Father. And in that way, our simple acts of generosity and compassion unite us in an eternal expression of the love of God. But now, John takes an opportunity for an aside. Because up until now, he's been addressing the way that we can handle the doubts of our assurance that are brought on by the accusations of others. Doubts that are brought into our life by people implying that you should be better than you are. Doubts that arise when people claim that there is something that you are lacking. And doubts that crop up when legalists try to add expectations to the freedom of God that it was granted to his people. But this morning, John is going to address a different facet of doubt. How do we have confidence in our salvation when we struggle with self-condemnation? In other words, John is going to answer the questions, what do we do when our own consciences condemn us? What do we do when the sins of our past accuse us? What do we do when we seemingly can't forgive ourselves for the things we've done wrong? What do we do when we fall into the same sin for what seems like the thousandth time? In other words, when I lack the internal assurance of my own salvation because of the weakness of my heart and the indictment of my own actions, how do I find rest and healing and confidence? And that question leads us into one of the most beautiful passages in the epistle of 1 John. Beginning in verse 19, John says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth. In other words, that we have a relationship with God, that we've been united with God, that we are loved by God. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Now before we actually get into what John prescribes here, John is writing to those who've experienced salvation. They know Jesus Christ. In other words, they've been saved from the consequences of their sin. They've been given new life according to the death and resurrection of Jesus. They have the Spirit of God indwelling them. They know God as Father. But John here starts with an assumption that may be unfamiliar to some of you. He starts with the assumption that it is a common experience for those who know Jesus Christ to wrestle with doubts and self-condemnation. And there are a myriad of reasons why people wrestle with these things. Some people wrestle with confidence in the assurance of their salvation simply because of their personality. Maybe your wiring is such that, that you tend to be the kind of person who's just marked 
by anxiety and insecurity. And in general, you may experience in your life a lack of self-assuredness and confidence, and those personality traits just bleed into your spiritual life just as much as they do into any other area of your life. For other people, they struggle because of their specific upbringing. Perhaps you grew up in a very legalistic, in a very legalistic religious environment that communicated either explicitly or implicitly that a relationship with God is something that you must initiate and you must maintain, and thus is something that you can fall into or out of. There are whole denominations, whole religions that teach that you can lose your salvation, that there is no assurance of your salvation, or that only through self-discipline and religious fervor can you really know that you've been saved. And religions and religious expressions like that put people into absolute bondage. They force an external anxiety into the hearts of their adherents because you can never be assured that God actually loves you and will not abandon you. And so people develop overly sensitive consciences, consciences that are formed by things outside of the Bible, where they begin to be bothered on a soul level by things that ought not bother them, or at least ought not create doubts as to their salvation. And so people put the proverbial cart before the horse. They presume that by virtue of their good behavior, they can earn the love and the affection of God, that their behavior earns their identity rather than their identity producing their behavior, as Dave addressed a couple of weeks ago. And still some others struggle because of their wrestle with a particular sin. Some people have what they consider to be major sins in their life major points of failure, major regrets, things in their past that continue to haunt them months and years and decades after they've occurred, and they just can't imagine that God could get past it. Or they wrestle with the same besetting sin time and time and time again, and they presume that forgiveness exists for other people, but not for those who know better. And still others struggle because of their own experience within their family where maybe they were abandoned by family, rejected by family, ignored by family, and they presume that given enough time, they will be rejected, abandoned, and ignored by God himself. And there are no doubt countless other reasons why people might struggle with this, and God in his infinite compassion for us, uses the words of John in verse 19 to say that even those who are saved, who know God, who are of the truth, those who experience new life through Jesus Christ, will have occasion to reassure their hearts. And he addresses those people, perhaps many of us even in this room, by saying this in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. In other words, Christian, there will likely be moments where you find yourself in those dark nights of the soul, stints of depression or anxiety, seasons of doubt and worry, the slough of despond, as John Bunyan called it, moments where your own heart, your own conscience condemns you and creates questions about God. 
And so the first question as believers that we need to ask ourselves is this, how are we able to tell the difference between the condemnation of our own hearts and the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible is going to say that there are moments where the Holy Spirit who indwells you as a believer is going to reveal to you things in your life that need to be addressed. Areas of your belief or your behavior that are not matching up with who God has enabled and called you to be. But there are other moments, according to John in this text and countless others, where your own heart condemns you. So how do you tell the difference between the condemnation of your heart and the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And there's at least three ways that the Holy Spirit does this. First, the work of the Holy Spirit always, always leads you further into the truth. So in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus himself says this. He says, when the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit's work in our life is to show us what is good and right and true. He wants to reveal Jesus all the more to you. Whereas when you are condemned by your own heart, you are tempted to believe lies. So as you diagnose this in your own heart, have you ever had moments or even whole seasons of your life where you are drawn to despair spiritually? Where you're tempted to think of yourself as worthless? Where you're tempted to say things like, well, God couldn't possibly love me. Or even, as is the experience of many Christians, where in talking to yourself, you find yourself using the third person, you, You are the worst. You're such a failure. You're such a mess up. If you're so experiencing the condemnation of the heart and not the, if if so, rather, you are experiencing the condemnation of the heart and not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're buying into a false narrative. You are believing something about yourself that God himself has stated is not true. And the Holy Spirit is never going to lead you into that sort of self-condemnation. Second, the work of the Holy Spirit always leads you into deeper assurance, not deeper doubt. So Paul addresses this in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, you were sealed past tense, it's already happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And here's how he describes who the Holy Spirit is in your life. The Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit is never going to lead you to question the sufficiency of what God has already declared as done. He's never going to do it. He's never going to lead you to believe that there is something more you need to do as if the work of Jesus wasn't enough for you. And finally, the work of the Holy Spirit always leads us closer to Christ. So in John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says this, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in the name of Jesus, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The work of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus more visible, more central, more manifest in your life. And to the extent that you are feeling or thinking that Jesus is further away and more inaccessible, you can be assured that that is not the work of the Holy Spirit in you. 
that that is the work of your own self-condemning heart. Because if you're a believer, the Spirit will always lead you to truth and assurance in Jesus, always. Because the Spirit convicts, but he never condemns. That's the guarantee of of what we know according to Romans chapter 8 when it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so when you've identified that what you're experiencing is the condemnation of your own heart rather than the conviction of the Holy Spirit, where do we then look? Where is your first hope? And according to John in the second half of verse 20, our hope is in this, that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So in what ways then is God actually greater than our own heart? Well, at least two ways. Because first, he's greater than our heart in that his standard of perfection is higher than ours. That God's standard, his expectation for what a, perf- for what a life ought look like is absolute perfection. The standard of perfection to God is his own holiness and his own glory. And in whatever ways we sin and we fail and we rebel and we reject, we are standing in opposition to God himself, and therefore we have fallen short of that standard. Now, how does that lead us into any kind of assurance? Because left alone, it doesn't. It only brings more condemnation. But fortunately, God is greater than our heart in another way. He's greater than the self-condemnation that we would inflict on ourselves. In other words, his hand stretches deeper than you can dive. And his healing binds better than you can harm. And his grace extends further than you can fall. And his redemption chases faster than you can run. That's the promise of Psalm 103 where the psalmist says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear, which is to reverently trust him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who reverently trust him. For he knows how we are formed. Listen to this. He remembers that we are dust. In other words, when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you know him, he knew what he was getting with you. There was no buyer's remorse. There was no resentment. There was nothing in God that said, if I would have known what a failure I was getting with you, I would have left you there. No, he knew what he was getting. He remembered that we were dust. And it's the assurance of the end of verse 20 when John says that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. We haven't pulled the wool over his eyes. He didn't save us knowing about our acceptable sins and then upon receipt discover that things were way worse. No, he knew all of the ways that we would fail, all of the ways that we were broken, all the sins that we've committed, and he still said, yep, That's the one I want. And this leads us to where many people, both Christians and non-Christians, find themselves regularly, which is saying something along these lines. Well, I know I'm forgiven. Or in the case of a Christian, I know that God forgives me, but you don't understand what I've done. 
And God may forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. And if that is the very common position in which you find yourself, what you need to recognize is that you have transposed your and God's role in the process of forgiveness and restoration. Because if you believe that what you're really in need of is the ability to forgive yourself, then you believe necessarily that the standard of righteousness that you require for restoration is higher than that of God himself that God's standards are just a bit lower than yours, a bit more attainable, a little easier to meet. And you believe that your own sorrow, your own confession, your own penance, and your own self-flagellation are of more significance than the sacrifice of Jesus himself. In other words, you have removed God from the judge's bench and you've taken the seat yourself. You've looked at the death of Jesus as the payment for sin and you found it lacking. You've said, as you've heard often from us, to Jesus, you might as well have just stayed home. You have bent the perfect standard of God to bow to your own arbitrary whims and feelings. And in doing so, you have made absolution and forgiveness something that is impossible to attain. God in that moment is declaring you free and forgiven and loved. He's opened the cell door only to have you try to slam it shut once again. And the invitation of this text is to see that God knew everything about you. Everything. And Jesus covered all of it from beginning to end. So John is saying here, understand that God's standard is higher than you could possibly imagine. But his grace likewise extends deeper than you could possibly hope. And notice where all of this leads in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we receive, and rather whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And again, the warning lights go off in our minds. Wait a minute, I I noticed what he just said there. What he just said there is that God will answer my prayers if I obey everything and honor him. And that seems like a condition that is impossible to attain. But here's what John is saying. He's saying, if we can come to believe what has been said about you in verses 19 and 20, if you can begin to live, in other words, in the freedom that has been provided by Christ, Whatever we ask in him, we'll receive. Now, does that mean that I can just ask God to give me whatever suits my own heart at any moment and be confident that I will be given it? No, that's not his point at all. What he's saying is that when we find ourselves in the position of being absolutely forgiven and accepted, free from the condemnation of our heart and resting fully in the fact that we are known and loved by God, I can ask anything of him knowing that my will is aligned with his. That God in his abundance of compassion and generosity might might grant my request to the extent that it is what he has for me or that since he is a loving and compassionate father who knows better than I do what I need, he has something even better for me than what I would have thought to ask. 
But again, there's this proviso at the end of verse 22 that freaks us out. Why does he answer these prayers according to John? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And the fear kicks right back in in our own heart. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that God knew everything and forgave everything, that he loves me, but now you're saying that there is this condition of obedience in pleasing him. And I know I don't always do that. So how in the world can I possibly have confidence that when I pray, God hears me, let alone answers? And this is where well-intentioned, good-hearted Christian people create all sorts of little exception theologies. They try to make little cutouts in the understanding that we have of God and his goodness and grace in order to make our understanding fit who God is. So they begin to say things like, well, in order for God to answer your prayer, you need to keep short accounts with him. Or you need to make sure that your union with God isn't broken. Or they say that you need to make sure that there is nothing between you and him. And if you do that, then God will hear and answer. And the problem with any of those little exception theologies, according to the whole of the new covenant, is that in Jesus, the accounts have all been settled. My union with God has been perfectly secured by Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit, and I am now free to boldly approach the throne of grace. So before we freak out and make all kinds of bad theological decisions in order to prove what we assume to be true, let's see what this command is that we're actually expected to obey, because John's going to give it to us in verse 23. What is the commandment that we have to obey in order for our prayer to be heard? Here's what it is, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So what needs to happen in order for my prayers to be heard by God? Be a believer in Jesus Christ. It is that simple according to this text. And all the fears we have about am I heard or have I sinned or have I confessed everything or did I forget to, did I forget to repent of something or I screwed up again, is it possible that God's still hearing me? All of those fears that we have are allayed by this particular understanding because the commandment that we are given that we must obey in order to be heard by God is to believe in Jesus Christ. And to experience then the outflow of that belief when we demonstrate our belief in Jesus Christ by loving one another, as we've talked about for the last several weeks. Because when you experience the love of Jesus, it necessarily begins to work its way out in your life. And when you believe the promises of Jesus and trust in the work of Jesus and extend the love of a Jesus, you are experiencing the core of what it is to be a Christian. but we refuse to believe that it's that simple. And so we add all kinds of technicalities and all kinds of rules and all kinds of laws and all kinds of expectations. We do the very same thing the Pharisees did. We add to the word of God 
and create a bunch of expectations that God himself does not have of us and then presume that by the failure of meeting up to our own expectations, somehow we have handcuffed God. And God refuses to be treated that way because his grace is too rich for that. And John closes in verse 24, closes chapter three by saying this, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and the commandment has already been given, right? That we believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And when we keep his commandment, we abide in God and God in us. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That when you were born again through the new life that Jesus offered, you not only received new life and get to abide in him, but he promised he will abide in you as well. In other words, the confidence that you have for your Christian walk is not just in your ability to cling to Jesus or even in your ability to abide in him in whatever application we might make in our life. The ultimate confidence that we have is that it is him who abides in us. And where we might fail, he never will. And that Holy Spirit indwelling us gives testament to our belonging. It's evidence to the fact that we belong to God himself. Evidence to the fact that we have perfect, unbroken communion with the Father through Jesus Christ as proven by the Holy Spirit in our life. And I don't know that there is anything in all of Scripture that pictures this communion with God more powerfully than the Lord's Supper that we're going to observe together today. Because behind me, there are elements set out. There's wine and juice, and there's bread as well. And those elements represent the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ himself. That he sacrificed himself, gave himself, gave his own body for you and for me, so that, in the word of the Psalms, our sins could be separated from the Father as far as the East is from the West. That we could be absolutely sure that God knows everything. And that in knowing everything about us, he still chose us. And not only did he choose us for himself and bring us into perfect communion with him, into perfect union with him, but he also called us into communion with one another, with brothers and sisters to whom we get to show the love of God. And so when we partake of these elements, we are reminding ourselves, we are imbibing that reminder that we have been made one with Christ and he with us. We get to remember his sacrifice and remember what it is we've been brought into. And while it is on one level very, very solemn when we come to the table, in another level it is incredibly joyful. Truly a celebration. Because it gives us confidence in this life rather than doubt. 
It stands as a physical representation of the assurance that the Holy Spirit gives us in our own hearts. And so what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to take a few minutes of silence. For some of you, when we do things like silence, it feels incredibly long, maybe boring, maybe awkward. But realize that what we're doing when we take a few minutes of silence is we are calming our own hearts as we are enjoying our time with the Father. Because truthfully and honestly, how much time do we actually take in a given week to be still and quiet? Or for some of you, even have the opportunity to do it. So we're going to spend some time to be with our Father, and then when the music begins, you can begin making your way up. We're going to ask that everybody come up this aisle over here on my left, your right. So if you need to head around the room to come up um, on that side, we'd appreciate that. Receive the elements and then return back and around off to our right, your left. Um, but, but what we're also going to ask is this. Um, this is something that is reserved for those who are part of the family of God. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, please don't hear that as a prohibition or as an exclusion, so much as an invitation to consider what it is we've talked about in this text this morning. Read through this text in 1 John and the promise of assurance that it gives and understand that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, that offer is being extended to you. And so consider what it might mean to know Christ if you don't know him. And then let's explore that together. And just to be clear, to the extent that you have doubts and to the extent that you have questions, you are welcome here. And please come doubt and question in the safety and the comfort of brothers and sisters who love you where the gospel is being proclaimed. So we're going to take some time to be still. And let's pray just before we do that. Lord God, we thank you for the confidence and the assurance that you offer through your word. And we thank you that you understand in your perfect sovereignty and in all of your wisdom, not limited by particular times or places, but understanding the very essence of what it is to be human, that you understand what it is to have doubts and fears and worries and questions. And that you don't tire of our questions, but rather you have an answer for them not a flippant answer, not a dismissive answer, but an answer that addresses the very heart of what it is to be human. That when we doubt, we look to you for our confidence so that we can reassure our own hearts, so that our own hearts can be reassured in you. And so for those of us in this morning who know you, Lord, as we come to your table, would we be assured and would we gain that confidence afresh and anew in this morning? And God, for those who are here who don't know you, would, be, would today be the day where they would understand the calling of the Holy Spirit in their own heart and life? Would they see the sacrifice of what you gave up for them, the confidence and the assurance in which you desire for them to live, and that your desire is not for any to perish, but that all would know you? And so, God, we rest in that in this morning and trust you to do what only you can do in our hearts. So as we go into this time of silence, Lord, let us be still as we enjoy our time with you and spend time with you, and then rejoice as we participate in these elements together in a few moments. And it's in the beautiful name of our Savior that we pray. Amen.